0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Brad Stolberg, who is the author of Most recently, a book called The Practice of Groundedness, A Transformative Path to Success That Feeds, Not Crushes Your Soul, uh, but is also the author of, co-author of Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid the Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success. Also the author of Passion Paradox, co-founder of The Growth Equation, and also affiliated with the University of Michigan's Graduate School of Public Health. Welcome, Brad. Greg, it's great to be here. This book, Practice of Groundedness, in, in many ways, builds on your previous two books, but I think there was a bit of a rupture, I think, at some point I mean, in your life between the earlier books and this most recent book where you had, you know, you came down with what you refer to as OCD, right, or what people, you know, have diagnosed as OCD. I think this, uh, this informed the book because in, in a way, right, when you see a book called Peak Performance, this seems like the kind of book that attracts folks who are like hard charging, like, yeah, you know, I got to conquer the world. I got to go out there and make money and be the boss and so forth. I mean, that's not, the book is much more subtle than that, of course. But when you get to the book, The Practice of, of Groundedness, it's still about achievement. It's still about success, but I think it's about building success in a more reflective way, in a more sustainable way. Maybe you could call it kind of I don't know, sustainable success, or at least rethinking this idea of success around, you know, what you want to achieve and who you want to be. Now you didn't use the word character at any point in the book, but it's, it's so informed by Buddhism, Taoism, Stoicism, Saint Augustine, right? All of these philosophers, but you know, as opposed to the traditional view of philosophy, I think you're, you're you're very action oriented, right? And I think you talk about the knowing doing gap, and so there's a lot of exercises and a lot of practice in this book. So I guess the question is, you know, is this a book of philosophy or a book of self help <laughs> or a book of both?
0: I get asked this a lot, and I know that you'll appreciate this. Is it's both, and it's all of the above. I think that there are so many silos in how we think about fundamental problems. and Part of what I feel very fortunate for as a writer is I don't have to publish novel research in a very specific domain. I can look across domains and I can try to find patterns and particularly on these topics of mental health and success in performance. They're softer topics in the sense that it's not molecular biology, and there tend to be bell curves, so a lot of findings. right? Danny Kahneman famously said, don't ask if this is true, ask what this is true of. I think that the way that you get to truth with a capital T in this area is by identifying patterns across very different domains of research and looking at history, philosophy, and practice. So is it a pop science book? Sure. Is it a philosophy book? Yes. Is it a self-help book? Yes. Is it a leadership book? If you want it to be, it, it attempts to kind of transcend domains. That's what my marketer would want me to say. What my marketer wouldn't want me to say is it doesn't really fit into any of those categories. Right, but it does seem that there
1: is an increasing awareness that the, the dogma of peak performance the way it's understood by the general public has in some ways run it, run its course right in other words maybe peak performance isn't the right descriptor but this idea
0: that you yeah, you, and and you I, heroic and I push
1: individualism right
0: individualism yeah, yeah. i was going to say i'd push back a little in in part because right the first book i co-wrote is called peak performance and you know that book is 100% defensible it is evidence based it is what you do when things are clicking, That book really brought this concept of resting like an athlete to the more traditional workplace. so the the big principle in that book is stress plus rest equals growth. So it wasn't like a you know crush yourself all day, every day, nonstop discipline to get to the top of the mountain. It was a a very evidence-based reflective path on how to get to the top of the mountain. I think what groundedness asks that peak performance didn't. Is what mountain are you climbing, and why are you climbing it to begin with?
1: Yeah, the peak performance. I have to say that I I was I was misled by the title. Right? You
0: know, it was very very different. A lot book of people are
1: kind of what what I expected. Yeah, I thought it was going to be something in, in more in the vein of what what you call kind of heroic individualism. Could, could you you know could you talk a bit about that? Right, like at what point did you kind of diagnose this heroic individualism problem? Maybe give us a description of it. And kind of, you know, tell us a bit about how you became more aware of it.
0: So first let's define it. It is the constant pursuit of more. It is the false belief that you can achieve or accomplish your way to fulfillment. And it is a phenomenon where the goalpost is always 10 yards down the field. So if I just make partner, then I'll be content. If I just marry that person, then I'll be whole. If I just win the medal, then I'll be able to sleep at night and have self-worth. Uh, psychologists call this the arrival fallacy. And it's a yeah. clever name. and explains treadmill. exactly what the, what the arrival fallacy is, the hedonic treadmill. In many of the wisdom traditions I cite, this is the root cause of suffering, constantly craving more and having a false expectation that more will fulfill you. And the other thing about heroic individualism is culturally, We are so obsessed with striving for these external measures of validation and being productive that that obsession often cannibalizes time for people. And all the research shows that what actually leads to a good and fulfilling life isn't rope productivity, it's connection and belonging. And it are things that are perhaps in the acute short-term quite inefficient, but over the long-term, very efficient. And the, the book defines this problem and says, hey, we are all kind of running on this treadmill. We're all trying to get to this goalpost. A, we're never going to get there. B, even if we did, is it the right goalpost to get to? And C, is there a better way to pursue excellence, to pursue goals that can also be more sustainable and fulfilling? Because it's not a book that says, go to the monastery and live a contemplative life and don't worry about striving. I, the first kind of intellectual odyssey that I had personally, where I got lost in a book, was my sophomore year in undergraduate school. I read *Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance*, and the concept of a rete I got obsessed with, like this notion of striving and excellence in achieving one's potential, and that still runs deep in my my thinking. The question that I ask in the book is the current way that we're defining success and excellence is nothing like the ancient Greeks thought about it. And then you look to the East and you see what Buddhism and Taoism said, and same thing, even in Buddhism, which is so often associated with um, non-striving, one of the eight noble truths is right effort, which is really about the right way to strive. So this book takes that ancient philosophy, looks at the modern science of the arrival fallacy, hedonic treadmill and says, is there a way to strive that is more wholesome, more fulfilling, more grounded? So that's heroic individualism. You asked me how I diagnosed it. I saw it in myself, and I saw it in all the individuals that I coach. I saw it in my colleagues, my friends, whether I looked up to people that are older than me or looked the other way at people who are younger than me. Everybody just kind of seemed to have this feeling of frantic and frenetic energy and a sense that they were no longer in control of their lives, even though by conventional standards, many of these people ought to have full autonomy. They're financially autonomous, they're successful, yet they just felt like they were out of control. I spent five years interviewing people and defining a a kind of syndrome of heroic individualism, and, and that's how it came to be the, the problem that the book attempts to define and address.
1: You know, and I think we we tend to think of this heroic individualism as a, a malady that is particular to 21st century America or 20th century America or you know, modern day capitalism. But, you know, whether you're talking about Confucius or whether you're talking about Buddha, Lao Tzu or, you know, Seneca or Aristotle, I mean – they were also kind of minorities in their time, right? I mean, they they were also kind of diagnosing the same thing around them, right? I mean, it, it seems like it's it's a it's a perennial. The the philosophers are always kind of the uh, the in the minority, right?
0: I think so. This is definitely a perennial problem. I think it's the human condition to strive for more. An evolutionary biologist would say that this is just in our wiring, never to be content. I think that it has become intensified by the fact that there are so many facets of our life that are now measurable, measured, and judged by others. So it used to be that you could get really caught up in how you're performing at work. And maybe 50 years ago, there was one or two promotion cycles a year and you got really stressed and you either got the promotion or not. Then 20 years ago, there's a whole suite of dashboards that you can check every week. Now, there are real-time metrics in just about every single knowledge working job that you can get obsessed with checking. So you step out of the workplace. Well, if you're on social media, suddenly your life is now like a commodity that people get to rate. So do you get likes and retweets and followers or not? And I think that that is what has changed recently, is the intensity of the striving for something that will fulfill us and listen I, again like i am not above this i thought that getting my first book published would fulfill me nope i thought that selling my first hundred copies oh then i could say i arrived as a writer nope and you know it it is the human condition and i think a, a, such a weight off people's shoulders is learning that hey no external goal is going to fulfill you so you better try to find fulfillment in the process And I feel really fortunate to have learned this at a somewhat young age, but there are people that go their whole lives until they retire just waiting for that thing instead of realizing that that thing is right now. And it's not to say that we shouldn't strive for goals. Again, I think there's so much value in setting meaningful goals and pushing yourself to pursue them and ideally doing it with other people. But I think that we should be more particular about the goals that we select And ask ourselves, the path to those goals, that's what we're going to be spending most of our time on, is that something that is going to fulfill us, going to allow us to practice our values, so on and so forth. So it's a long-winded answer. Yes, these problems are as old as time. I think I mentioned the four causes of suffering or the wheel of suffering in Buddhism really is just about suffering exists. There's a source of suffering. That source of suffering is craving, more, more, more. And there's a remedy to suffering, which the Buddha offered as this Eightfold Path a part of which was right effort. Again, in the Greeks, there's very similar kind of thinking around what true excellence is. It's not 100,000 Twitter followers or regional vice president. It's crafting a life worth living. That's what I'm trying to explore in a more modern context.
1: Well, you, you've got your own kind of sevenfold path. <laughs> you know, we can kind of walk through those those different elements of what you call kind of groundedness. But it seems like all of them require... A degree of self knowledge, right? I mean, you can't really start making any progress in any of these areas if you don't have uh, a good awareness of what the implied values you have are. And I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about how this experience that you had with the OCD impacted your view of groundedness. I mean, look, you're you're in the business of coaching. I mean, I, I learned that you do a lot of coaching in addition to in addition to writing. Um, you know, which is, I guess it's kind of like a, it's a clinical version of what you're writing about. So usually, you know, when you talk to psychologists, there's the clinicians and then there's kind of the theorists, right? You you know, you're straddling both of these worlds. I mean, how could you put yourself forward as a coach of performance and so forth when, you know, you were having these, these struggles internally that must've created quite a bit of conflict for you.
0: Oh, for sure. And it it, it did. So I I had been coaching executives, entrepreneurs, and um, physicians are a big part of my coaching practice. They were then and they still are for a little while, a couple of years before I had pretty stark onset obsessive compulsive disorder, which for people that want to learn more, you can read in the book, you can just Google like actual OCD. I won't go into it, but the quick primer is people hear OCD, they think about being a neat freak or needing to have your clothes nicely folded. That is not OCD. Clinical OCD is just a terrible spiral of like the most intrusive thoughts and feelings and urges. Those are the obsessions. And then compulsions, which is what you do to try to make them go away which of course just make them stronger. That's the cycle of OCD. And um, I was trapped in this cycle for a solid six months and it, it was bad. And when it was bad, I wasn't really thinking about anything other than how can I get out of this cycle and how can this get better? Once it started to get better through a mix of intensive therapy and medication, that's when I started to be like, well, wait a minute. I am supposed to be this coach of high performers, yet I was scared to leave my house for four months. So how do I square that together? Who am I to coach performers? Especially many of my clients are older than me. And um, ultimately, a psychiatrist, not my psychiatrist, a psychiatrist mentor and friend said that, guess what, man? Like A part of peak performance is playing through the pain and everyone's got their shit. So just own your shit. And I did, as you mentioned, the cognitive dissonance between having this public profile of author of peak performance and people want me to coach them on achieving their best while having been so sick uh, was pretty overwhelming. So I decided to publish a pretty long essay just laying out my experience with OCD. And you know, I, I wasn't really scared about what people would think. Thank goodness we've made so much progress and this is even five and a half years ago on stigma around mental health. It was more just a fear of, well, I'm not really at the other side of this. And if I like write about it, does that mean that I've somehow conquered it? Cause I was still, you know, six months, like I was starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I didn't know if it was going to come back. And even that was really challenging, but also really powerful to be like, yeah, you know, this might be a chronic condition and I might go through like really despairing periods and I can have this and still think about peak performance, coach towards it, write about it, so on and so forth. Mm Those two things don't have to be exclusive. It can be a both-and sort of situation.
1: Right. Well, speaking of both-and, we talk about this as a sickness. We talk about it as a medical problem. But, you know, in many ways, it's, it's a philosophical problem, right? A lot of the folks that you reference in the book are, are philosophers, even theologians. Do you think we have trouble kind of in, in our world thinking about things through that philosophical lens thinking about things as sort of spiritual problems or philosophical problems. I always, when I think of cognitive behavioral therapy, I'm like, wow, this is, this is philosophy to me, <laughs> you know? Like, are we too dependent on kind of medical language to kind of think about our, our mental situation, our pain and our suffering and so forth?
0: I think it's an ultimate case of it depends. So I think that there is mm-hmm.
1: My favorite phrase. Real value.
0: <laughs> yeah, me and you both. I think there's real value to thinking about this sort of thing from a philosophical lens, but there's a risk that we can romanticize these sort of maladies. So for instance, in my case, I had no experience with obsessive compulsive disorder up until the point that I was basically driving a car and had the intrusive thought that maybe I'd drive off the road and started having an urge to drive off the road And it just felt like someone flipped a switch in my brain and it was no longer working like it had been my entire life up until that point. If you would have told me then, oh, well, St. Augustine or the Buddha, or you know, why don't you read the Stoics? I would have been like, F you, I need to see a psychiatrist. And I'm really glad that I did. Four months later is I'm starting to understand in medical language what happened in my brain, how to retrain my brain, the role of medication, Then suddenly thinking about it from a philosophical lens made so much sense because I didn't over-identify with this medical diagnosis. So I think it's really, really contextual. I think that broadly, if we spent more time in philosophy, then I think there'd be less mental illness because we'd accept that this kind of suffering is a part of the human condition. I think a big cause of particularly depression is people... Having this false belief that they should never be sad, they should never experience despair, they should never question the meaning of life, when in fact, all the great arts and philosophies do just that. And I think if we can normalize that, then when people find themselves doing it, they wouldn't freak out and be so scared, which is often what causes like an anxious, depressive spiral. So, yeah, I do think that would be good. But I think when someone's kind of in the throes of this, the medical model makes a lot of sense. But I think there's a real risk of getting stuck in the medical model. And I think the path out is to kind of go from medical model to philosophical thinking about these sorts of things. At least that's the path that worked for me and I've seen work for others in my research. Well, the title of your book
1: is The Practice of of Groundedness. And, you know, I I think the analogy to physical fitness is is a good one, right? Physical fitness requires practice right and consistency and you know there's no there's no pill that you can take although a lot of people would love to have a pill right so they could take and you know if you haven't exercised for 30 years you know you're not going to become fit overnight so the practice of groundedness emphasizes the idea that you know you have to actually work at this stuff and you have to kind of practice it also suggests that you know if you haven't been doing this or thinking about it for your life then there's no Quick fix. So can you think of groundedness as sort of the the mental or, or spiritual equivalent of physical fitness in a way?
0: A hundred percent. So, you know, you think about fitness and and the original definition of fitness is simply one's ability to thrive in their environment. And it got physicalized. I'm making up a word. I shouldn't. I'm a writer, but it became really physical. But physical fitness is really just about like, can your body meet the tasks that are demanded of it in a certain situation? So if you think about mental fitness, it's like, hey, we all live in this culture where there's a lot of heroic individualism. What kind of fitness does it take to be able to survive and ideally find a way to thrive in this culture? and you're right it is an ongoing practice and it's the the bright side of that is it's something that you can develop it's learned it's behavioral the downside of that is it takes time it's virtually impossible to shoot 100% and it's not just a switch that you can flip i remember when we were discussing the title of the book there was some pushback by by people at my publisher to call it get grounded and well you don't get i wish you got grounded it probably sell a lot more copies but i don't have the the solution to get grounded overnight what i hopefully have is an evidence-based model for practices that gradually over time will help you feel less pushed and pulled less frenetic and frantic and in and, and more solid where you are
1: well i feel like if you were to approach somebody and say to them hey you know like you're you're out of shape referring to their kind of physical fitness I think it would take less offense. I think most people are like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, I really am um, out of shape. But if you kind of go to somebody and say, hey, you know, you're kind of mentally or spiritually out of shape, I think people would push back. I think people don't want to hear that. I think people are a little bit more defensive when it comes to their spiritual or mental well-being. Why Why is that? I mean, don't, shouldn't we all want to be fit in that way? I mean, is it that we interpret it as an attack on our on our person and our character in a way that we wouldn't if we uh, were to receive some feedback on our, you know, physical fitness.
0: That's exactly it. You took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say it feels probably more like an attack on one's personhood. I also personally hesitant to tell someone that they're out of shape in that way because I don't know the way that I approach it. And what I can confidently say is that for those of us in the West, we live in a culture that makes it very hard to be mentally fit. And it often feels like swimming upstream. So you need a really strong stroke. And what I try to do is help people develop that stroke and first in themselves and then in their communities so that the current becomes a little bit less strong in the wrong direction.
1: Yeah. No, I like that analogy of swimming upstream, right? Because think about the community aspect, right? I mean, if you are surrounded by a community, if you're embedded in a community, and I think about folks who uh, say are in graduate school, right? You know, you go to law school or you go to business school, then the community is kind of created for you, right? Or you belong to a church, right? Then you kind of have this community that you don't really have to work too hard to, to create. But if you're outside of those environments, if you're sort of a normal type of person and a normal type of experience, then, you know, it's kind of up to you to, to kind of fabricate that. If you're not invited to be a part of a salon, then you have to create it and you have to organize it and you have to herd all these cats into an environment and a setting and you have to kind of, you know, renew it and invest a lot of resources in creating it. I was talking to some folks about parenting and they say, you know, they would love their kids to be out there with the other kids, but there aren't any other kids out there for them to be with. So it's, you know, if you can't find these things sort of in your natural environment, and, and I think, you know, outside of 21st century America, there may be some other places where a lot of the things that you're describing are are just sort of in the environment. We really have to work hard to, to basically do all of these seven things that you mentioned, right?
0: For sure. You have to lead. Uh, and that's why I'm a firm believer that the principles of groundedness, it, it starts with yourself and then you got to work outward from there and in very small ways. You know, It's a little bit out of my my wheelhouse, and definitely above my pay grade to suggest this, but I think a lot of the societal problems that we're seeing, the solutions are going to be local, and it's going to start really small with groups of people going about their lives a different way. And you know, to your point about about that, there's been a pretty precipitous decline of normal gathering spots even prior to covid so For all of its benefits and for all of its ails, organized religion had been on the decline long before COVID. So that was a traditional spot where people found community, not so much the case anymore, or at least less so than historically. Youth, the professionalization of youth sports. So it used to be you'd go to a t-ball game, you'd have a picnic, all the families would hang out. Now the parents are at each other's throats, starting in like you know second, third grade. So that's another source of community, no longer the case. Jonathan Haidt and um, Greg Lubinowski cover this so well in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, but just even like neighborhoods where people used to be outside, there's this fear that it's not safe to let your kids run around outside. It turns out to be a very false fear if you live in most places in America. Um, So yeah, there's been this degradation of community and then COVID comes. And now for very good reason, certainly at the start of the pandemic when we didn't know much about it, we had to shut down community. And I think that COVID was like rocket fuel for heroic individualism, especially for knowledge workers, because now you could just work all the time. And also for good reason for knowledge workers, you had to be really efficient and optimized, especially if you have children, because your kids are home from school. Like you have to get really good at just kind of getting your work done. And as we're starting to reintegrate into life after COVID or life with COVID, I should say. A lot of that optimization, a lot of those habits have stuck with us. So, hey, instead of meeting Greg for a walk, I'm just going to do a Zoom because I don't have to leave the house. I don't have to drive to the trailhead. Uh, instead of going to the grocery store where I'm going to engage with other people and I might bump into my neighbors, I'm just going to use you know, Amazon or Instacart to get my groceries delivered. It feels like we are very, very, very low on community right now. And, um, and like I said, I think it, people don't even realize it.
1: Yeah. No, I was actually kind of surprised, you know, when I took a faculty position at universities, I had always thought that the these universities were, you know, everyone was kind of hanging out socially, you know, they had shared beliefs and shared interests and so forth. And But in fact, in academia, everybody is so obsessed with publishing and, you know, rising through the ranks that nobody really has any time for, for community, right? I mean, no one's I mean, that's why a, I
0: called it heroic individualism. Yeah. And if that's the case in the academy then the yeah. rest of
1: us are screwed. It's
0: it's again it's, it's the
1: I don't know whether it's like the people are endorsing this set of values as much as they, you know, are kind of feel compelled to endorse these these values, right? It's like if I don't do this then I'm not going to get promoted and heck, you know, that's the name of the game, right? I'd rather not have to work this hard or compete this hard but you know, I don't have a choice. I think there's this this sense that you know, people don't have a
0: choice. Yeah. And that gets back to what we were talking about a little while ago. I doubt that most of the professors at Berkeley are spiritually and mentally unfit. Sounds like though, the, the pond or the river that you're swimming in has a current that is really, really, really tough to swim in, in a way that is grounded and sustainable. So again, like the, the, the goal here isn't to, wave a magic wand, I wish I could, and and make all these institutions more grounded and have the right priorities and change the publisher or perish model and, and all of this. It's basically to say, what can you do personally without quitting your job tomorrow to live in a way that feels more grounded? And then how can you slowly start to spread that to other people in your community that are important to you? Right.
1: Now we think about these companies, right? So the large companies like uh, Google and Facebook, right? A lot of what they were trying to do was to create community, kind of make something that looked a lot like a college campus so that people would, you know, stay at work longer. To what extent is, are the principles of, I mean, the principles of groundedness on, on the one hand seem like they are in alignment with kind of people performing at their best, which would mean that companies would presumably have an interest in promoting practices of, of groundedness. But then there seems to be this tension, right? Right you know where you want to pit people against each other you know get people working really hard and you know to extract the most profit from them are these principles in in conflict to some extent or are they in alignment i mean when corporations say hey we want our employees to be happy right we want them to be mindful a lot of companies are having you know they promote mindfulness is this is this cynical or is this is this something which uh, can potentially align
0: the interests can I, like, it depends yeah, on both course. and you of again
1: Andor Of and or, and,
0: and, and both, uh, it depends. I love these. All right. So here we go. I think that um, to answer your question, it depends on the time horizon. I think that following the principles that I lay out in the book and having a grounded culture will lead to the best performance over the long haul. Now, if you wanted to get the most out of people and you think of your company or the whole economy as just an extraction economy, then it makes no sense to be grounded. What you should do is you should throw 100 eggs at the wall and keep throwing them until they break. And then when one egg breaks, you bring another egg in and then you throw that egg at the wall until it breaks and so on and so forth. And I think that the easiest model to look at for this is actually in sports. So most athletes, they don't peak in most sports, until they're between 25 and 32, maybe 24 and 32. And there's a huge agency problem because you get these coaches in high school and college that wanna get the most out of a kid right then and there. And what happens is they often push those kids too hard and those kids suffer from injury, both mental and physical, and they never peak. And that is what I call like the eggs thrown in a wall model. And you can have a phenomenal team just by chucking eggs at a wall and you get a few that don't break, you get lucky and you win a world championship. And the ones that break, you just replace them with the next part. I think that a lot of the kind of like high-charging corporate world still operates in that model. They pay lip service to things like mindfulness, but as long as they're chasing the short-term result, then it's very hard to do. Now, if you wanted to have a company that looked really successful over 10 or 15 years... Where there's a real benefit to having people with institutional knowledge who feel ownership of the company, who have been there for a long time, where you don't have to deal with transition cost of training new people, then I think it makes a lot of sense to play the longer game and to really develop people and let them flourish over time. So I think the, the short answer to your question is, here, let me make this like really concrete. All right, Greg? If you said, Brad, I want you to get the most out of yourself over the next two weeks, And I want you to write the best stuff that you've written and crank out. I want you to write two op-eds for the New York Times, a Saturday review for the Wall Street Journal, and draft a chapter of your next book. I could probably do that. And I would sleep about four hours a night. I would be drinking Red Bull and espresso around the clock. I would shut out my wife and kids. I would absolutely have no time for friends. I wouldn't walk my dog. I probably would neglect my own hygiene and I'd have a phenomenal two weeks. I'd crush it. But that's no way to be good over the course of a year or a decade or a lifetime, and I think ultimately this is the challenge. What's the time horizon that we're working on? And are we actually caring about people or are we just caring about short-term acute results? Yeah, I mean so that that's really speaks to kind of the the
1: discount rate to use the language of my discipline, right? So in finance, you know, we talk about the discount rate. Yep, 100%. Yeah. And and so, you know, a lot of people are they can't kind of look past their nose. You know, the, the always-on digital media environment is one that kind of exacerbates that. You know, your, your dopamine is being triggered almost nonstop. Your stress levels are, are exacerbated. You know, certainly COVID, the clickbait, and all the sorts of technological advances that you've referenced in the book. I mean, it seems like they're all more or less designed to stimulate high discount rates. We live in a, in a sea that is you know, feeding our, our kind of high discount rates.
0: Yes, we do. So the metaphor that I use in the book is um, brown rice and M&Ms. So if you're really rushed and you're really hungry and someone presents you with a basket of M&Ms or a plate of brown rice, you're going to choose the M&Ms every single time, at least if you're anything like me. And they're going to taste great. And you're going to really enjoy eating them, maybe for the first 10 minutes, maybe even for the first hour. But if you eat M&Ms nonstop for a day or a week or a month or, God forbid, a year, you're going to start to feel absolutely gross. Whereas if you eat the brown rice, you'll feel really fulfilled and nourished. Now, the first 10 minutes of eating brown rice is never as exciting and never feels as good as the first 10 minutes of eating M&Ms. But over the course of a year, you feel a lot better. So what I talk about with my clients and what I talk about in the book is ultimately so many of the decisions that we're making are brown rice versus M&Ms. Do I go on Twitter and spend 15 minutes crafting a tweet that I know is going to go, you know, get 200 retweets and make me feel relevant and status-y? Or do I pull up the blank page of a word processor and start on my next book proposal, which I've been putting off? Well, if I constantly go to Twitter, I'll feel really good in the moment, but at the end of a week, I'll feel like I actually accomplished nothing and my brain is fried. If I start the book, it's going to be really hard at first, but at the end of the week, maybe I'll have written... A thousand, two thousand decent words, and I'll feel really good and really stimulated. And I think that that is the ultimate trade off that we face all the time. And, and, and looping back to where we started, around like this is a perennial problem, but there's just more M and Ms around us. I think like the the digitization of many parts of the economy incentivize a lot of companies to make the M&Ms taste even better so that they have our attention, right? That, that's like the name of the game for a lot of these companies. So part of this new fitness is, is developing the ability to identify those M&Ms and then come up with strategies to make it easier to, to choose the brown rice. Now, it's a clever analogy. I'll give myself credit. It's not new. In Buddhism, there was a disorder that was called the hungry ghost disorder. And the hungry ghost had a really, really long neck, and it never got full. It just kept on stuffing itself and stuffing itself. And the food went down this gauntlet of a neck into this big bloated belly. And by the time it reached the belly, the hungry ghost was hungry. So it was eating more and more and more, and it just lived this bloated, miserable existence. And ultimately, that is the risk that we all face if we can't discern what we should be eating and what we shouldn't be eating. And I don't obviously mean that in terms of food. I mean that in terms of how we spend our time.
1: Right. In Plato, it's the, the, you know, leaky pot in Gorgias, right? You see these uh, everywhere. We've been talking a bit about patience here, but you have, you know, acceptance, you have patience, vulnerability, community, movement, and so forth. Do you think that, you know, these are uh, somebody who's in the education space, right? You know, we don't have classes on these things. We kind of teach vulnerability in our leadership class. Well, actually, actually, I don't think we have really courses on any of these in, in business school, in law school, even in undergraduate. Uh, and yet, these seem, you know, far more important than, say, I don't know, trigonometry, for instance, right? It, you know, do we not? So,
0: can we team up? Well, Do you want to teach the course? I'd love it. Yeah, I mean, like, why don't we <laughs> teach this? I'm, You're right. I, I don't, and I don't, I don't have an answer. I don't know, and I think that. Maybe some of it is just institutions move slowly and the intensification of the M&Ms and the candy all around us, it, it's been really fast, right? I mean, on a national scale, we're grappling with this in the role of Facebook and more broadly social media and democracy. And the technology has way outpaced our ability to deal with it. And the generous answer is that that's the problem. The less generous answer is that these institutions are just not wanting to change. I think that these principles should be taught probably before college, like in high school. You know, what used to be, what was it? I took a class. I mean, it's been a long time since I was in high school, but like home rec or whatever. That that should not be the class that you sleep through. That should be the class that you're most engaged in because like life skills ought to be this kind of stuff. You know, just imagine how much high schoolers would benefit if there was a class on social media literacy. And how social media can impact your self-worth if you use it the wrong way. I mean, to me, that seems more valuable than anything. Well, do you think it's it's because we think that this is
1: what people learn from their parents or it's in the water? We Maybe we used to get nutrition from our diet and now our diet doesn't have it, so we're not getting it and we're not supplementing anything. We're not fortifying the grain or we're not, you know, putting the fluoride in the water. Right. But because it used to be in the diet, now it's not in the diet. I mean, is there an extent to which we just sort of as educators kick this back to the churches and the family, but the churches and the family are not doing this job anymore because they're all busy off busy doing other stuff.:
0: I think that's part of the problem. I'm shaking my head as you say that, because you you look at like the best-selling books, right? It's why the title of my first book kind of turns you off, and it's why my first book has sold like over 200,000 copies. and that was a very, very to give you some inside baseball. that was a very deliberate decision. That title is cringeworthy for my co-author and I. But we wanted people that didn't necessarily know that they needed what's in the book to pick up the book and read it. And I can't tell you how many people have said, I am so glad I read this book. I thought I was going to get A, I got B, and B like saved my life just because we called the book Peak Performance. It's like brown rice with the, with the M&M coding, it, right? Bingo. That's exactly it. Whereas groundedness is much more like, here's the here's the brown <laughs> rice. I guess I'm, I i don't have the patience anymore for the coding. But um, yeah, I think that that's a big big part of it. And if, if again, if everyone is kind of swept up in this heroic individualism, well, then there's no time to have these conversations at the dinner table or with your friends because you're busy working, you're you're busy charging ahead and kids learn by watching their parents more than anything. So I can write this book on groundedness, but if my son sees me on my phone while I'm playing with him, that's, that's what he's going to learn from, not the fact that dad wrote this book. So I think it really requires us to live this stuff. I would love nothing more than to have this taught. And this, obviously, right? The ego in me is like, yeah, teach groundedness. I don't care. Teach CBT, teach acceptance and commitment, like call it whatever you want. But these fundamental principles that I think are so important, like you said, they just get brushed over in these settings where we're supposed to be shaping young people. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of overlap. So like what, what I call groundedness someone else might call acceptance and commitment. I love Stephen Hayes. He's a mentor. I quote him a lot in the book. He's the the one of the co-founders of acceptance and commitment. Others might call CBT. Um, if you read the book, you'll see I've become more and more, more skeptical on the C part of CBT, but I think the B part is super powerful. And others might call it Buddhism or a more mystical type of Christianity or Judaism or Taoism or Stoicism or Plato. And I think that the fact, again, back to the pattern recognition, the fact that all these separate silos are pointing towards these same truths, it's like, holy crap, maybe we should be paying attention to these truths and teaching them. Mm-hmm. Well, we do have a class in you know physical education,
1: but what I found interesting about your last piece on movement was you're more likely to get the benefits of movement if you kind of incorporate it into your life in a more even way. Right. And so, you know, I I always think about when you're looking at the fat content of a piece of meat, right. You could have like a pork chop that is very, very lean with a ribbon of fat on the outside, or you can have kind of a a well marbled, right. (laughs) You know, pork chop where the fat is kind of all the way through. And I think that, you know, for all of these, it's not like, okay, between three and 4 PM, you know, that's when I'm going to be patient. And then, you know, between 6 and 7 p.m., that's my vulnerability hour, right? You know, uh, but that, I think that's typically the way, you know, we think about achieving goals, right? We, you know, we, we put on the to-do list and then we set aside some, some time for it. But, you know, you're advocating this is really about, you know, this is really about who you are. You know, this is about kind of
0: continual practice, right? Yeah. And that gets back to what you're saying about character. I think it's about character yeah character um, I love, and you know that word never occurred to me. I wish it would have I think it's really smart the The definition of character I like you might know um, I forgot if it was Plato or Aristotle, but basically like character is is just habit, it's what you do again and again and again, that's your character, and ultimately, I think like this is about developing character. And it's not character from an egoic sense of, look how great I am. It's simply like, I want to feel good most of the time, and I want to do good. And I don't want those two things to have to be an opposite. And I think that's a trap that so many people run into, is they think in order to do good in the West, you have to sacrifice feeling good. And if you want to feel good, you can't do good. And I believe that is a false premise. Do you have to make some sacrifices on status and finance and accolades to feel good, perhaps, but you can still do really good things for your community, for the world at whole while feeling good. It just takes developing a certain set of skills that, as we touched on, Like they're just not taught. I didn't learn any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, in other words, it took me... Really, to be honest, it, it took me getting... It took me getting blindsided by OCD, having a phenomenal therapist, and then towards the end of my intensive therapy, switching out of the medical model and being like, wow, you know, everything I just learned in therapy, like this stuff's as old as time. And holy crap, you look at sports science, something so disconnected from living a good life, and you dig a level, and the fundamental principles of sports science are the same as like living a good this this stuff is truly pretty universal. Now that's not to say again, back to your like people want to do something for an hour a day. I wish it were plug and play. It's not, but I think that it can equip you with a really good toolkit. And then wisdom is learning what tools to use when. Well, another word that doesn't appear in the book is is virtue.
1: But um, you know, in many ways, what you are advocating is very much in alignment with kind of Aristotle's, you know, view of of virtue. And, you know, as an economist, we, we always, you know, whenever I read something, I'm thinking, okay, is this a story about trade offs? Or is this a story about, you know, win-win, right? So I think you just articulated this idea that, you know, maybe we don't need to think in terms of trade-offs for many of these things, right? That we are kind of, to use the economics language, you know, below the frontier, right? You know, we can actually have, you know, win-win, right? And, um, you know, once we acknowledge that this is not about trade-offs, like either I'm going to be you know, successful professionally, or I'm going to be happy, you know, either I'm going to be successful in the short run or successful in the long run, that, that, you know, you can overcome some of these, these trade-offs if you, if you think in a different way.
0: Yes, I think so. I think it first requires, again, picking what mountain you want to climb. If you come to me and you say, I want to climb the mountain of being the Instagram influencer with the most followers based on my body. Well, guess what? If you want to be grounded, that's a trade-off you're going to have to make because I don't think those two things will ever go hand in hand. Now, if you tell me, hey, I want to be a professor that is um, admired by their students and their peers that publishes meaningful work and be grounded, then yes, I think that's win-win. The second thing I'd say is, well, what's your time horizon? And that's often where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people. Um, And the time horizon has to be longer than the quarter to quarter cycle, or that I need to have all these goals accomplished by this year. It's a very cliche thing to say, but I think it's so true, which is people underestimate what they can do in 10 years, but they overestimate what they can do in one. So they perpetually burn themselves out trying to do too much in one year, and then 10 years passes and they look back and they're like, crap, what happened? Groundedness
1: seems to be like the integration function. It seems to be the thing which all of these different
0: practice ties all these practices together. You know, why did you pick that term? So the the origin story of that term is I didn't have a unifying term, so I had the problem diagnosed, which I actually first called um, never enough syndrome, and then it became heroic individualism because I think the the individualism part is a, is is really important to highlight that we're kind of all bowling alone. I was on a hike with uh, a close friend of mine named Mario, who was experiencing some burnout in his own life. He's an entrepreneur, was just working really hard. It was a very gray day. This is back when I lived in Northern California, up by you. We were in Redwood Regional Park, and the redwoods were just blowing back and forth in the wind. It was very windy in addition to being gray. And I looked up, and for a minute, I'm like, are we safe? Like, like, I don't want to get hit by a tree. I know that stuff doesn't happen, but if it's going to happen, today seems like the day. And then I looked at the trunk of the tree and it was really solid and stable. And then I thought, well, what's holding that trunk to the ground? And it's this root system. And the tree is grounded because it's got these roots, but no one sees the roots. So if the overstory, what I looked up at with my friend Mario, if that's the promotion or the gold medal or the impact factor of the journal that you're the editor of, that's what everyone sees. But when it gets really windy, whether or not you're going to be able to hold the ground, it's contingent on the stuff that no one sees, the root system. And each principle of groundedness kind of represents like a root that's holding you to the ground. Now, sometimes as a writer, you just get lucky. So here's where I got lucky. About six months later, I was in Big Basin National Park, which is um, up near the Santa Cruz Mountains. And they have old growth redwoods, so just massive. And I picked up a little brochure because I'm a curious person that was randomly in the park. And I learned that the roots of a redwood tree, they only run six to 12 feet deep. So even these massive trees with trunks, the size of school buses that are 200, 300 feet high, the root systems are only six to 12 feet deep. So how on earth do those roots that are so shallow hold this tree to the ground? And the answer is that they intertwine and connect and overlap with the roots of all the other trees. So a big, tall redwood cannot survive alone. And that just completely like blew my mind. It was a gift as a writer. And I'm like, this is the perfect metaphor. And it's why community is this principle of groundedness that holds all the others together. And why ultimately I hope that this starts as a individual practice, because I think it has to, but then it spreads in communities because ultimately um, that is what's going to help us all be more grounded as we strive for our own respective versions of excellence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want to embark on this journey, a lot of people are intimidated.
1: They're looking for some place to start. And in the book, after each section, you offer a bunch of practices, right? A bunch of things that you can do to move closer to a state of groundedness, which I think, you know, a lot of books don't offer that. (laughs) They don't say, okay, all right, now that you've learned this, why don't you go and, and try this? And it seemed like sometimes it makes sense to start with action. Sometimes it makes sense to start with attention, do you need to kind of hone your attention and your kind of awareness and you develop a sense of intellectual kind of humility before you embark on, the, on this journey? Or, you know, do those things kind of
0: flow from kind of incremental actions that you can take? You're asking such good questions. Um, I think it's a cycle. So in the book, I called it the being doing cycle. So your being, which is close to what you just described as your awareness, influences your actions you're doing, but then your actions reinforces your being. And um, I think a big problem that a lot of books like this, that, that that they run into is that they only cover the being. This isn't just me pontificating, right? We know that the the best route... So if, I, I love to look at extremes to learn. And one extreme uh, where behavior change is very hard is in people uh, experiencing a clinical depression. And no amount of self-knowledge or awareness of what you're going through helps when you're in clinical depression. What helps can't, is behavior. Can't think your way out of it. Uh, it's called behavioral activation. Nope, you got to act your way out of it. Again, the term is behavioral activation um, developed by a psychologist named Lewinson in like the late 70s. And it's the gold standard behavioral treatment for, for depression it isn't therapy. It's not digging to figure out why you're doing it. It's doing a load of laundry and then going for a walk. <laughs> and that is ultimately what gives you a chance at changing your being. And it's obviously not as simple as that, as someone that's experienced some depression, like I want to be be thorough here. Sometimes it requires medication and, and all this other stuff, but it's very powerful. And, and any well-trained psychologist would say so. So if that's how you make change when you're really stuck in a rut, then when you're not, action's perhaps even more powerful. But if you have no idea why you're acting or in what direction you're acting or what's the point of your actions, then you're not going to get anywhere either. So I think it's this self-reinforcing cycle. So to answer your question, where where I'd start is I would I would have a knowledge and an awareness of where I'm at and where I want to go and and why I'm doing what I'm doing, but I wouldn't get stuck in this mode where I'm going to read every book <laughs> in the reading list at the back of groundedness before I try any of this. You try and read at the same time. Yeah. And it's 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 an enticing trap. When I first got real quick, when I first got into meditation, you know I I, I feel like. Like you, I'm a heady person. I love to talk about this stuff. I I have a very intellectual drive and curiosity. In, I don't know, maybe eight months after working with my meditation teacher, he's like, your homework is not to read any more books on meditation for the next six months. You don't have to meditate for a certain amount of time every day. Just stop, stop, stop. You're over-intellectualizing. And some of that comes from awareness and knowing your temperament. Someone else that sits on the mat for 40 minutes every day but has no idea why, the instruction might be go read some books. So it's a both and.
1: Yeah. I, I remember I was in a very unhappy place and um, I basically got out of it by throwing dinner parties. <laughs> so, you know, creating like a little salon of my my own and, and it extricated me from that, that situation. So, so that's my new go-to whenever I, I'm feeling, feeling bad. I just throw a dinner party and it seems to, seems to work. Seems to jumpstart some things.
0: Yeah. It sounds so it sounds so so trivial, but it's true. It's like if being in a rut or a depression is telling you, oh, you're too sad and tired or apathetic to go hang out with people that you plan to hang out with, you should just cancel. That is the best sign to go hang out with those people. And it doesn't always make things better, but it definitely gives you a chance. Right. Well, look, there's so much in this book. um, You cover a lot of ground. You know, if you want to learn
1: about the arrival fallacy, if you want to learn about acceptance and commitment therapy, if you want to learn about the wise observer, if you want to learn how not to let the arrow hit you twice, if you want to learn a little bit about the not to do list, which I just created after reading the book I created. And the not to do list unfortunately is getting almost as long as my to-do list and, and it's starting to uh, starting to freak me out a little bit. But there's so much the habit energy. There's a lot in the book. I recommend everybody check it out. And also peak performance. Really good stuff in here on balancing stress and rest. Thanks so much, Brad. Thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.